Are you looking for a way to save a little money? What about getting your subscriptions under control? If so, then I've got just the solution for you. Rocket Money. With the help of Rocket Money, I was able to find a subscription that I completely forgot to cancel before the free trial was up. I'm sure you've all been there. And Rocket Money can help me cancel it. Between streaming platforms, apps, delivery services, and even parenting and kids subscriptions, it's hard to keep track of exactly what you're spending and how much it all adds up to each and every month. Not to mention the fact that it seems every single day one of those subscriptions suddenly jumps up in price. Rocket Money alerts you when this happens so you're never caught unawares. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With them, I can see clearly what my monthly spending is and how it compares to the month before, making saving money and taking control over my finances so much easier. They'll also try to negotiate lowering your bills up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. That's rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Rocketmoney.com slash morning cup. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. It's hard to believe that in a time where forensics have advanced so much, there are still so many unsolved cases. On August 5th, 1993, a young girl disappeared from a small, seemingly safe town. And to this day, not only is her murder officially unsolved, but so is that of a young girl who was murdered years later by potentially the same individual. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Holly Pirinen was born on January 19, 1983, and was described by all who knew her as a normal, happy young girl just on the cusp of those important preteen years. She liked things like The Simpsons, spent as much time as she could with her friend group, who all prepared to enter the fifth grade together, and had dreams of becoming a marine biologist when she was older. She had a mother and father who loved her, two brothers who cared about her, and a community in Grafton, Massachusetts that would have loved to see her grow up in the safe and quiet town. Unfortunately, no one would get to see Holly Pirinen live past her 10th birthday. On Thursday, August 5th, 1993, Holly, her brothers, and their father were vacationing at her grandmother's summer cottage in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, just about 30 minutes from their home in Grafton, when, at approximately 11.45 a.m., their father saw Holly walking down a rural road with five-year-old brother Zachary in tow, saying they were off to visit a neighbor whose pet collies had just had puppies. 
something happened with another neighborhood dog on their way to visit those puppies, and Zachary ran back to his grandparents' house to seek comfort from his father. Realizing Holly was now on her own, Rick Pirinen sent both of her brothers back down the road to retrieve her. But moments later, they came back empty-handed. As the adults rallied to try and locate Holly, someone found one of her shoes lying on the side of the road. While innocuous at first, Holly's grandmother remembered that at a recent 4-H camp attended just one week before she went missing, the young girl was taught to leave something personal behind if they were ever taken or in trouble. Realizing that this may be Holly's way of asking for help, the police were called and almost immediately, police and volunteers from three different states started to look for the missing young girl. Canines scoured the wooded areas where the shoe was found. Divers searched a nearby pond, and helicopters circled a three to five mile radius overhead to see if a bird's eye view helped in any way. Nothing beyond her shoe gave any indication or clue as to where Holly may have been taken. But as the weekend stretched on, police became more and more certain that this was not the case of a lost girl. They couldn't help but agree with her grandmother's original assumption and started to treat the case as a child abduction and Holly as a victim of foul play. With an investigatory gear switch, police began interviewing residents, questioning any and all sex offenders, set up roadblocks so no one could leave the area, and sorted through more than 100 tips called in daily, while her family and volunteers did what they could by distributing piles of missing persons posters and littering the streets with pink ribbons so no one forgot who they were looking for. A week after her disappearance, Holly's case was featured on America's Most Wanted. On September 7th, all of their hard work seemed to pay off, when at around 3.15 p.m., a woman made a call claiming that she saw a girl fitting Holly's description on the New York State Thruway. She was in a brown Dodge Omni or Chrysler Horizon, she couldn't quite tell, and the car seemed to have a Vermont license plate and was being driven by a white man in his mid-20s with receding brown hair, big bushy mustache, and, quote, wide buggy eyes. The car, which had rust all along the bottom of one side, made the exit towards Waterloo, New York, and a call was made to the Seneca County Sheriff so he and his men could aid in the search. For days, local motels, state parks, and roads were searched high and low, but in the end, there were no signs of the brown car, the buggy-eyed man, or Holly Perrainen. The case after this call quickly went cold. That was until October 23rd, 1993, when hunters in Brimfield, Massachusetts stumbled upon her remains just miles from where she had last been seen three months prior. According to those who knew the area, the remote spot where she was located was a place known only by locals, meaning her killer did and may still walk amongst them. Unfortunately, to this day, no one knows who took the life of the 10-year-old girl. Of course, that doesn't mean that there haven't been leads and even arrests in the case. While Holly's family set up the Holly Perrainen Scholarship Fund and locals set up a homemade pink cross deep in the woods of Brinfield in her honor, police continued to work on her case with a $40,000 reward waiting for anyone to give them that all-important lead. But while they waited, on June 27, 2000, a 16-year-old all-American girl from rural Warren, Massachusetts, disappeared while working as a lifeguard, only to have her remains show up three years later in neighboring Hamden County 
after what became the largest search in the state's history. Molly Beach began working as a lifeguard at Commons Pond in the summer of 2000. On the day before her disappearance, Molly's mother, Maggie, noticed a mustached man in a white car parked in a lot near Molly's stand. At the time, she thought he was just waiting for someone and didn't think anything of his presence. But when her daughter went missing the next day, she knew the stranger had something to do with it. Though Maggie didn't see the stranger near the stand on the day that she dropped Molly off for work, another witness reported seeing a man matching her description moments before Molly and Maggie arrived and a local worker saw that same man parked at a cemetery that connected to the pond through a covered path. An extensive search for the teen was launched and her case was profiled on several TV shows. Yet, it wasn't until late fall of 2002 that anyone had any idea what happened to Molly Beach. That's when a hunter walking through Whiskey Hill in Palmer saw what looked like a blue bathing suit in the woods, and though he thought nothing of it at first, relayed the information to a friend in May of 2003, who then contacted the police. Her body was located on June 9th, 2003, just five miles from her family home. The similarities between Molly's case and Holly's were obvious, and one particular coincidence sent a chill down even my spine. Because the cases were so close, when Holly went missing, 10-year-old Molly wrote a letter to her parents expressing her sorrow. It read in part, I am very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly is a very pretty girl. She was almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they found her. Many believe that these cases are connected. And as I said before, there have been a few arrests for both murders. In 2009, a suspect in Molly's case named Rodney Stanger was investigated. Rodney, a Florida resident, was convicted of murdering his girlfriend and had lived in Southbridge, Massachusetts, just a few miles from the town of Warren, where Molly went missing, for 20 years before moving just a year after her murder. Following Crystal Morrison's murder, her sister alerted Massachusetts authorities about this potential suspect. He was known to have access to a white car similar to the one Maggie saw the stranger driving and was known to fish in Commons Pond and hunt in the woods where her body was later found. Not only that, but he bore a shocking similarity to the man Maggie Bish saw the day before Molly went missing. Although he seems like a strong suspect, he has never been charged in her case, nor Holly's. According to one source, Rodney had a brother named Randy, who again, according to this one source, became another suspect in Molly's murder. A man who, at the time of Holly's abduction, was living in a tent in the woods of Brimfield, where her body would eventually be found. He was questioned on the day that Holly went missing and cooperated with police. But when his brother was arrested for killing his girlfriend in Florida, but when his brother was arrested for killing his girlfriend in Florida, Randy was considered missing by his family. In 2005, 12 years after Holly's murder, Zachary Perinen started to have flashbacks to the day that his sister went missing. Anne was able to use these flashbacks to produce a sketch that, according to some, looks eerily similar to Randy Stanger, a man who Holly's family did not know as a suspect until 2009. Neither of the Stanger brothers have been charged with either murder. Another person of interest was a man named Gerald Battistoni, who was linked to Holly's case by a private investigator and former state trooper named Daniel Malley. 
According to Daniel, Gerald, who died in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts at the age of 52, was serving a 10 to 12 year sentence at the time of his death for repeatedly raping the 13 year old daughter of the woman he was dating in the early 90s. He was also in the Brimfield area when Holly disappeared and in the Warren area when Molly disappeared. In fact, in 1993, the mother of the young girl he raped was a real estate agent and had displayed her name and photo on a for rent sign in the yard of a home near where Holly's grandmother lived, the home that she was vacationing in. And he drove a white Chevy while living in Warren with his second wife. Shortly after the accusations against him were revealed in 2011, Gerald Battistoni was hospitalized after cutting his throat. Daniel Malley and the Bish family asked for DNA testing on Gerald to be done. The DNA was sent off to Texas, but Gerald Battistoni died in November of 2014. The last person of interest I am going to talk about today is a man named David Powliot, who, like Gerald, is no longer alive to receive justice if guilty. On January 3, 2012, Hamden County attorney Mark Mastroianni announced that forensic evidence found near Holly's body had been linked to David, who died in 2003. The nature of the connection has never been disclosed, nor the type of testing done, and investigators say that, though he is a person of interest in the crime, he is not an official suspect. David, who lived in Springfield, Massachusetts, frequently hunted and fished in the area where Holly's body was found. He was also a Vietnam veteran who worked at a juvenile detention center and was arrested for cocaine use in 1999. He had no history of sex crimes, and though this seemed like a big break in the case, there have been no updates to this link since the 2012 announcement. In the end, it is hard to say if the case of Holly Perrainen and Molly Beach will ever be solved. But what I can say with certainty is that, given the tight-knit community both girls went missing from, it's likely that someone knows something, knows who her killer is, and is keeping it to themselves for one reason or another. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on August 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.